Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your lavish um, grace towards us. We pray now that as we come to look at your word, that you would speak to us. We pray that Andy would know your help also, and that you would be glorified above all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Good, well, good morning, everyone. Good morning to you, new faces that we didn't see yesterday. It's great to have you with us. Can I just check what time we're supposed to be finishing for coffee? Anybody? Oh, sorry, it's right here, isn't it? Thank you. Yeah. Good, excellent, 11. That's fine, that's excellent. It's always good to know when you're supposed to be finishing. Um, okay, folks, please turn to uh, 2 Corinthians and uh, chapter 2. Now, uh, yesterday we had a brief introduction to, to the letter and uh, discussed the fact that one of the reasons that this is quite a difficult letter to read, if you're just opening it for the first time and trying to read it through from beginning to end, is that there's a whole stack of issues um, from Paul's past interaction with the Corinthians, which have all piled up in a, in a, in a long line. Uh, there were problems that existed right at the beginning of his interaction with the Corinthians, which are still running. There are problems that have happened since he first visited Corinth. And since the first Corinthian letter that we've got, there have been, uh, there's been a, a very painful letter and a difficult visit and all that kind of stuff. And uh, more than that, uh, since the last letter was written, uh, a group of alternative teachers has arrived in Corinth. And um, they have made everything more difficult. So as you read this letter, there's just a whole bunch of things going on at the same time. Uh, one of the reasons you'll find the handout useful if you uh, just arrived this morning is that the handout chart, the first session, we charted out on the handout all the history of the interaction between Paul and the Corinthians. So that you'll be able to, to, uh, to, uh, to pick up the clues as we meet them uh, in this uh, letter. Now, this morning, we are going to be going through chapters 2 to 7, and we're basically splitting it into two. Um, this first part of the morning, we'll go from 2.14 to uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 15, and then uh, after coffee, we'll go 4.16 through uh, to chapter 7. Um, why this section? Well, because it belongs together as a whole in ways that I'll show you in a moment. Uh, but particularly because in these chapters, Paul does the big theological groundwork in dealing with the false apostles who've recently arrived. They are perhaps the biggest single issue in this letter. Remember yesterday I said that everywhere Paul goes in his traveling around ministry, there is a countermission, seemingly from within the Judean churches, probably from within the Jerusalem church, that seeks to undermine his law-free gospel that he communicates to the Gentile world. And in one way or another, these people who follow him around all the way through the New Testament 
uh, aimed to bring Gentile believers under the law of Moses. Now, he doesn't really go head to head with them till later on in this letter. Uh, we'll meet that particularly uh, tomorrow morning. But what he does in these chapters, chapters 2 to 7, is to do the sort of theological spade work that makes him able to go head to head with them later on in the book. All the way through this section, as he describes his ministry, he is describing his ministry over against theirs. This is what I do, and by the way, not like them. All the way through he's doing that. And I'll try and point out uh, how he does that as we go through. Now, we, we're covering a lot of ground. We won't have opportunity to dot every I and cross every T. And there will be plenty of detail we don't spend much time on. But what I do hope to give you a feel for is what's going on in the whole argument. If you've got questions about detail, by all means, stick them in the question box. And we'll try and deal with those uh, in a bit more detail tomorrow. Now, let me just sketch out the lie of the land so that you see how this section works. If you remember, chapter one has got lots of comfort language at the beginning. That's where the letter starts. Uh, and he reassures them in this that the fact that he hadn't come to them but wrote a difficult letter instead is not because he doesn't care for them. It's because he really loves them. Chapter two deals with how anxious he was while he was waiting for Titus. Remember, he sent this painful letter uh, to the Corinthians from Ephesus with Titus. And uh, look at 2.12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, I had plenty of opportunity in Troas for the gospel, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. I was anxious to hear how the letter had gone down. I knew it might be difficult. I couldn't rest, even though there was good work to do. Now, look on to chapter 7, verse 5, please. Just keep a finger in chapter 2 and look, at, look on to chapter 7, verse 5. At 7, 5, he picks up again where he left off in chapter 2. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And he goes on in the same vein about how much he's been comforted. Let's get the big picture here. Chapter 1, Comfort. Chapter one, anxiety, uh, chapter two, anxiety about how he was while he waited for news from Titus. Chapter seven, news from Titus and then comfort. Do you see the ideas of anxiety about how it would go and the comfort he now feels that he's had good news from Titus top and tail this big part of the letter? Why is that? 
Well, at the beginning and end of this part, he is giving them strong reassurance that he loves them and is tremendously concerned for how they are and is tremendously concerned for how that letter went down. Big reassurance of his affection for them. In the middle, in between, a very careful unpacking of what his gospel ministry looks like. Now, why does he do it in that kind of package? It's like a sandwich, really, the bread on either side and the meat in the middle. Why does he do it like that? Well, I think he's doing this. I want you to know that I'm desperately concerned for you. It starts and ends on that note. But my biggest concern for you is that you become confident again in my way of doing things. And that's what the middle bit's all about. And I want you to become confident in my way of doing things, not their way of doing things. You see? That's what he's doing here. He's trying to shift their affections from the people who are with them now, who look very persuasive, towards him and his way of doing things, because that's the legitimate way of doing things. I don't want you to be confident in my concern for you so that you will love me. I want you to be confident in my concern for you so that you'll be won over to my way of gospel ministry, not that alternative one. That's what's going on in this section, therefore, okay? Now, we're going to look at the first bit of that. And um, if you want a title for this, I couldn't think of a title, but I came up with a title last night. Here's the title. It's rather a prosaic title. The title for this talk is New Covenant Ministry Looks Rubbish But Is Really Brill. Okay, that's the title. New Covenant Ministry Looks Rubbish But Is Really Brill. That's what he's trying to, to, to convince them of in this section. So that's, that's the big thing that's going on. It looks bad, but it's fantastically glorious. Uh, and that, you'll find that going on all the way through. He starts off talking about his triumphant New Covenant Ministry. Let me read the first section. Verse 14, 214. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, before we get into any detail, let me draw your attention to a running contrast that's going on in this section. Do you notice verse 17? We are not like so many are peddlers of God's word. We are men of sincerity. Chapter 3, verse 1. Do we need, as some people do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Look at verse 12. We are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face. Look at chapter 4, verse 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. All the way through this section, 
This is what we do. It's not what they do. We're not like them. All the way through this section, he is comparing him and his uh, fellow apostles with the false people. So just bear that in mind all the way through this section. That's what's happening. Uh, let's look at God's victory procession. Paul pictures a triumphant procession. What's he picturing here? He's picturing um, a picture of familiar in the Roman world. Uh, the great general goes off to battle. He wins, the, he wins the war. They usually do in the Roman world. He comes back to Rome. There is a triumphant procession entering the city. The great conqueror marches in on his horse with his chest sticking out and his flags waving and all that kind of thing. And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, how cool is he? He won the battle. He beat the enemy. That's the kind of procession we've got in view here, a military victory procession. What is this military victory procession like? Well, it's a procession that is not, in this case, uniformly well-received. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death-like things. To the other, a fragrance of life-giving things. This is not a procession that everybody standing by goes, whoa, look at him, how cool he is. This is a procession where some people say, that's fantastic. And some people say, how disgusting that looks and smells. It's a, it's a, a procession that cuts two ways, two reactions. It's, it's kind of like Marmite. You, you love it or you hate it. It's that kind of thing. Except it's taste rather than smell, but you know, you know what I mean. Who is sufficient for being part of something that provokes that kind of reaction, says Paul? Who's up to that? It's a big thing, that, isn't it, to be involved in something where you are both loved and honored by some and absolutely hated by others. That's a really difficult thing to live with. Well, that's what it's like being involved in God's triumphal procession, says Paul. Who is sufficient for that, he asks. He doesn't give a direct answer, but he's pushing towards the answer, which is we are sufficient. Not because we're driven by how the message is going to be received. Unlike so many, he says, we are not peddlers of God's word. Rather, we are commissioned messengers of God. If we were in it for the gain, it would be very difficult to live with that kind of reaction. If we were in it for the gain, well, we'd be changing our message all the time to suit the audience. But says Paul, no, we are in a ministry that provokes different reactions and we keep doing the same thing. Because we're not in it for the gain. We have been sent to do a job. We're not like so many peddlers of God's word. Now, he's implying, of course, that the people in Corinth at the moment are in it for gain in some way. What kind of way? Well, we'll find that out as we go through. God's victorious work does not always look victorious to the onlookers. That's the big point here. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need a some-do letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Am I blowing my trumpet here, he says? Am I saying how splendid I am? This section is full of pointed contrasts. No doubt some people are saying that Paul is commending himself. Why does he write these strong letters from a distance? Why does he come and visit with very critical visits? No doubt, say the false teachers in Corinth, he does that to make himself look big. He's working over there in Ephesus at a distance all he wants is for you to recognize him as being special. That's why he writes to you the way he does. Are we commending ourselves, says Paul? No, we, we're not. Do we, like some, need to be bigged up by human letters of recommendation? No, we don't. You, he says, are our recommendation. The fact that your hearts were changed through our gospel, that's all the commendation we need. That's the sign that we were doing something really important. And notice the contrast here. A letter written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Two sorts of writing. Not by ink, but by the spirit of God. And two sorts of medium. Not on tablets of stone but on human hearts. Now, folks, what's being contrasted here? What's he talking about? Why does he talk about tablets of stone, do you think, and writing letters on tablets of stone? Can, does that ring any bells for anyone? The law. the law, Mount Sinai, Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, that's exactly what he's doing. What he's doing here is contrasting the work of the Mosaic Covenant with his New Covenant gospel work. And what he's going to say in the bit that follows on is, our New Covenant ministry is completely different in its effects from the Old Covenant, from, from the Mosaic Covenant ministry. Why is he going to make that point? Because the people in Corinth are trying to drag the Corinthians back into an Old Covenant pattern of ministry to bring them under the law of Moses in some way. And Paul is saying, no, actually, you're already the recipients of something much greater and more effective than that. Two sorts of writing, two sorts of medium, an old covenant ministry and a new covenant ministry. I'm not blowing my own trumpet, says Paul. What I do want you to know is that there is a massive difference between what I am doing and what they are doing, these people who want to bring you under the Mosaic law. A massive difference. Look at verses 4 to 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. There again is that contrast. For... The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 
What he's saying here is that the, the ministry of the Mosaic Covenant was basically condemning and killing, but New Covenant ministry brings life. And I'm involved in the life-giving ministry, and I do not want you to come under a ministry which is not going to lead to that. Now, some very nifty moves have been made here. I wonder if you can see what they are. Paul's opponents, no doubt, are saying, look at him, look at his ministry, look at the fact that it looks so rubbish all the time. That must be a bad sign. He says, look at me, this is what the good life-giving thing looks like. Now, he's going to unpack how that works in what comes ahead. But he's making the point here that the mixed responses that he gets has theological reason behind it. That's what triumph looks like in this age. Uh, verse 15 and 16 is what triumph, sorry, 2.15 and 16 is what triumph looks like in this age. Some people think it, think it stinks. Some people love it. Why does he need to say this? Because, folks... The ministry of the Mosaic Covenant looks very grand. Just think what you get if you buy in as a first century believer to the Mosaic Covenant. Think what you get. One, you get a huge history. You get a huge history of God's great deeds with this people. You get the people who've been at Mount Sinai. You get the people who've been given the law. You get all of, all of that history and tradition. It's a very grand thing to be part of. What do you get if you buy into Paul's new covenant ministry? <laughs> well, in sharp contrast, you get something that looks new. It's got no history behind it. It looks like a break away from the old. And more than that, it looks rubbish because <laughs> people think it stinks all over the place as well as people loving it. Paul says, despite its grand traditions and its great history, the ministry of the Mosaic Covenant was, verse 6, killing. In other words, look at Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. What happened to them? It did not go well. It was a history of massive privilege, but massive disaster. The Mosaic Covenant did not rescue the people of Israel from the sin problem. Israel's history has been a failure, despite their privileges. And yet here are people in Corinth now saying what you New Covenant believers really need is to come under Old Covenant law. Paul's saying, how's that going to do anything good? That killed, it killed the previous generations. It's been a disastrous history. How do you think that's going to help? But you can see the weight of their argument because they've got tradition behind them and history behind them and scripture behind them and it's so obvious. Seemingly that that looks more glorious than Paul's. Paul is saying here, look, guys, you don't want to buy into that. That just killed them all. <laughs> it was a history of death and disaster. 
And do you see the strength of that argument? It looks grand, but it's not nearly as grand. Look at its history and its outcome. Indeed, says Paul, right from the start, the old covenant ministry looked on its way out. Now, folks, this is quite a difficult bit, so you have to get your brains in gear now. Verses 7 following. Now, if the ministry of death... (laughs) It's a great name, isn't it, for the old covenant, the ministry of death. It sounds like a government department. Um, If the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Notice that. What once had glory, the Mosaic Covenant, has come to have no glory at all because of that glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this very day, wherever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's not immediately obvious what that means, is it, on a first read? It's quite complicated looking. Let me try and get inside that for you. He is contrasting here two ministries and two glories. The old covenant ministry with its glory, the new covenant ministry with its greater glory. What was glorious about the ministry of death as he describes it? Well, many things. Mount Sinai was a very glorious occasion. Tremendously spectacular event. Moses' glory. Uh, I wonder if you remember, after the episode of the golden calf, the book of Exodus describes Moses uh, going into the tent of meeting and talking to God. And when he comes out, his face is glowing, radioactive. And he speaks to them, and then he puts a veil over his face, and he wears a veil over his face. All the time he's with the people until he goes back into the presence of God when he takes the veil off. He is a kind of go-between between God and these sinful people who've rebelled at, 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 at the Golden Calf episode. And I think the point that Paul is making here is that the old covenant ministry mediated through Moses was very glorious looking in lots of ways. But it had built into it, right from the Golden Calf episode onwards, a kind of sign that it was not doing the business that it was on its way out. Why? Because Moses does not present his glorious face to the people of Israel all the time. He can go in there, he can speak to God, he can relay God's message to the people, 
but they're not brought into a glorious relationship with God. After he's spoken to them what God has said, he puts the veil down and they can't see the glory anymore. After the golden calf episode, which is right at the beginning of the Mosaic Covenant, things are not all that happy between God and Israel. Hanging together, but not perfect. Not really glorious, despite the fact that there are lots of glorious things about it. Yes, it was a glorious relationship and a glorious covenant, but the veiling thing indicated that right from the start, things were not all they might be. And what he does now is to say, Israel has been kind of metaphorically veiled right from the beginning. Verse 14, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. In other words, they read it, but they don't get it. They don't get what God is saying through the Old Testament scriptures. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. I take it that means that only a new covenant believer can really understand the Old Covenant scriptures. You can't be Jewish and really understand the Old Covenant scriptures because until you're Christian, you don't get what they're really pointing towards and how they really work. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face in Christ, now we can see and understand, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The old covenant people are veiled metaphorically. Just as Moses was veiled physically, the old covenant people don't get the old covenant and what it means. But we, in Christ, can see it clearly. How does Paul describe it? He describes it as the ministry of death. It looked glorious, but actually, as an arrangement between God and his people, it was not ultimately successful. That's how Paul sees it now that he's in Christ, as something which looked glorious but wasn't effective. What is it like being a new covenant believer? Verse 18. Well, he says, we have unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What do you think that might mean, folks? Do you find that an encouraging sort of statement or a discouraging sort of statement? You could read that and think that's a very discouraging sort of statement. I look at myself when I, in, in the mirror this morning. I look much the same as I did yesterday and the day before and last year, except I'm getting older. Transformed from one degree of glory into another? Would you, just say, would you say that your Christian life had been described, it was being adequately described as getting more glorious every day? Is that how it feels like for you? Hands up, it feels, no, don't put your hand up, it feels like that for you, it's too embarrassing. Um, it doesn't feel like that, does it? It does not feel like that, does it? So what is he talking about here? Well, what image are you transformed into? 
when you see the Lord Jesus Christ? Whose likeness do you take on? Answer, his likeness. What does it look like to take on his likeness in this age, in this world? If anyone would follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, being transformed into the image of Christ, this side of the resurrection, means taking on a life and a pattern of living which is cross-shaped. Now, that doesn't look terribly glorious, does it? But that's the kind of this age transformation that Paul is describing here. It doesn't look glorious, but what's glorious about it? Folks, what's glorious about it? What's glorious about death on a cross? Anyone? Come on, boys and girls. What's glorious about death on a cross? What's fantastically, magnificently glorious about death on a cross? Answer, what it leads to. It's the after death on a cross that looks good, doesn't it? Resurrection from the dead. That's where the, that's where the glorious looking thing is. And we'll find that that's exactly where goes, Paul goes later on in this argument. Yeah, the glory of the new covenant ministry is not that it looks glorious now. It's that it'll look glorious in the end. But it is more glorious than the old. It doesn't look more glorious than the old. The old is associated with Mount Sinai and glowing faces and all that kind of stuff. This one is death-like, death-shaped in the present age. But what Paul is doing here in chapter 3 is saying there are two kinds of ministries being assessed here. There's the ministry of these people back in Corinth who are trying to bring you in some way under the Mosaic Covenant and there's a new covenant ministry, and one of them looks glorious, but the other is actually the really, the really glorious one. Don't buy into that one, buy into this one. 4.1. Therefore, having this ministry, this glorious new covenant ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to temper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Again, a very densely packed section. What's going on here? Well, Paul is describing how having a very glorious ministry, the new covenant gospel worker does not lose heart. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Why might the new covenant minister lose heart? Answer, because it doesn't look glorious now. And there are loads of setbacks. 
So uh, look, for example, at verse 3. Here's a setback that this glorious gospel is veiled, not understood by loads of people. And loads of people react very negatively towards it and are very hostile towards the minister. What does Paul do when people are like that? Well, he says, we, verse verse 2, have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You see, despite setbacks, despite the fact that we sometimes get very negative reactions, we will not cheat or change the message. Uh, That's what you would do if you were less convinced than him. If you know you're going to get a negative result, what do you do? You change the message. You won't get a negative result. If you know somebody's going to be furiously angry when you tell them the truth, what do you do if you don't want them to be furiously angry? You change the message so that they're no longer made furiously angry by it. it. But Paul is not like that. He is, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, a commissioned messenger. He's got a message to communicate. He can't just change it. So he refuses, chapter 4, verse 2, to tamper with God's word. Instead, he is into straightforward, open proclamation. Just communicating it clearly and openly. He doesn't change it. He is very determined because he knows it's a glorious ministry. Can't be tampered with. It's much too important to muck around with. Notice also... Because of God, there are things that he doesn't proclaim and things that he does proclaim. Look at verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God has done something amazing to us, he says. He's done the equivalent of... The creative act right back at the beginning of the Bible. Let light shine into the darkness. It's been as dramatic as that. Because of God, there are things that Paul won't do. Verse 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The argument is like this. Because God has done this wonderful recreating thing, we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim what God has done in Jesus Christ. Now, let me say, folks, uh, there is great pressure in Christian ministry to be a proclaimer of oneself. And one of the things that uh, Paul's critics are saying about him Chapter 3, verse 1, is that he is commending himself, bigging himself up. What he's saying here is, no, he's bigging Christ up, not himself. He's not proclaiming himself, he's proclaiming Jesus. And it seems to me that those uh, are the two uh, alternatives in Christian ministry. In Christian ministry, you're either a self-proclaimer or a Jesus-proclaimer. And there is great pressure to proclaim oneself in Christian ministry. Trust me, love me, respect me. 
depend on me. There are loads of Christian-looking ministries which are really all about that. I want you to trust me. I want you to love me. I want your honour. I want you to respect me. I want you to depend on me. But the proper Christian minister uh, position is, no, don't trust me, trust him. Don't love me, love him. Uh, don't honour me, honour him. Don't depend on me, depend on him. I don't want you to depend on me. Um, we looked briefly at Acts 20 yesterday. Just flip over to Acts chapter 20, please. Here we get this um, fleshed out. His warning to the Ephesian elders on his departure from them. We looked at verse 29 yesterday. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That probably refers to the Judeans encounter mission from Jerusalem. Notice what he says next. I know that from among your own selves, remember these are the guys that Paul has trained for ministry. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That is the big motivation of the false teacher in the New Testament. What does the false teacher want? He wants people to follow him. He doesn't want people to follow the Lord Jesus. He wants people to follow him. And so he twists the words somewhat, changes the focus, zooms in on himself or herself rather than the Lord Jesus. Uh, I am involved in running a course called the Pastor's Training Course. Uh, we, uh, the three-letter uh, acronym is uh, PTC, three-letter abbreviation is PTC. And we, we write it deliberately, small p-t-c. We're not training pastors. <laughs> We're training small p-pastors who will point people towards the big pastor, the big shepherd all the time. That is absolutely the heart of gospel ministry. It's the heart of what Paul is doing. He is not bigging up himself. In all of this, I want you to follow me. He's not bigging up himself. He wants them to follow him because he is following the model of the Lord Jesus and pointing people towards the Lord Jesus. And that has been contrasted with a ministry which is all centered in on trust me, follow me, love me, uh, respect me, and all that kind of thing. So, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Here is the determined pattern of New Testament ministry. Despite setbacks, it does not change the message because the minister is a commissioned messenger, not in it for the gain. And because of what God has done, the big job of ministry is not to big oneself up and proclaim oneself and how brilliant oneself is, but rather all the time to be shoving people in the direction of the Lord Jesus. He's the one to trust. He's the one to follow. He's the one to obey. And that results in, uh, in a ministry which has a paradoxical shape, 4-7. We have this treasure, this gospel treasure, this life-giving thing in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're not bigging ourselves up. Indeed, God does not allow it. For... 
Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us. In other words, we look like death. And that brings life to you. What he's saying here is that the proper pattern of the gospel minister is that he looks like he's just about to die in one way or another. It's difficult territory. It's taking up your cross and following me territory. That's what, belo- that's what comes to you if you teach the message of the Lord Jesus pr- properly. You find yourself being afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down and just always having difficulty to deal with because of the message that you're involved in. It doesn't look glorious. Treasure in jars of clay. Why does it not look glorious? Well, it looks glorious for a particular purpose. Verse 7, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God. It's one of the great mercies of God that he makes the life of the Christian worker difficult. (laughs) Why does he do that? To show everybody that the power is not in the Christian worker. If every pastor looked practically perfect in every way and was a kind of, you know, leaping tall buildings at a single band and running faster than an express train type pastor... Everybody would think, whoa, how cool is he? I wish I could be like him. But, folks, do you know a pastor like that? No, I don't know a pastor like that either. Not a real one. There are plenty of dodgy ones that look like that. You know, shiny suits and jet planes, and everybody loves them. And they're always on television and all that kind of stuff. But that, <laughs> Paul, is not, Paul wouldn't be on television, would he? He'd be in prison away over there in some difficult country that you can't get a television crew to. Now, the point is that God has made it so that the gospel brings to its speakers difficulty. Why? Show that, so that it shows the power is not in them. And actually, that's a great relief if you're in gospel ministry, a great relief. Because it doesn't ha- the power does not have to be in you. The power is not in you. <laughs> the power is all to do with God. So it's a paradoxical looking ministry. He says it's fantastically glorious, much more glorious than anything old, the old covenant ever, ever looked like. The trouble is it looks really rubbish. <laughs> the glory of it in this present age is that it looks rubbish. Why is it glorious then? Well, it's glorious because of verses 13 to 15. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what had been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing, why do we believe and speak as we do? Why do we do this message that brings such hardship? Because we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with him and bring us with you into his presence. It is all for your sake, 
so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. You see, just as for the Lord Jesus, the route to glory involved, think of all the things that it involved, being misunderstood and falsely accused and deserted and publicly humiliated and physically abused and unjustly condemned and brutally executed. Just as for him, his ministry led to all of that and then to resurrection, so for those who follow him, the route to glory and resurrection is through a pattern like that. There is no route to glory that doesn't go through something cross-shaped. That's the point that's being made here. The wonderful encouragement about that is that cross-shaped things will turn into glorious-looking things come the great resurrection day. Does your life feel like being more and more shiny every day? Well, of course it doesn't, but it may well feel like being more and more cross-shaped every day, every year. And that is a great encouragement if it does, because in the end, that is a route that leads to glory. For the gospel worker, the glorious ministry looks increasingly like dying all the time. But that's the route to glory and resurrection. Okay, uh, I said at the beginning that the title of this talk was, what was it? New Covenant Ministry Looks Rubbish But Is Really Brill. Well, we're back to where we started. New Covenant Ministry Looks Rubbish. Paul has unpacked that at significant length. If you're doing the real thing, it'll be hard. If your ministry in your church is doing the real thing, it'll look hard. And he'll be experiencing real difficulty for that. But glory is coming. Two things then. One of them looks glorious and the other doesn't. The old covenant ministry which these guys in Corinth are trying to bring the Corinthians under looks much more glorious than Paul's. But Paul says, nah, what I do, that's where the glory is. That's the route to glory. That's the thing to buy in. Are you going to access a pattern of ministry which looks great now, but in the end only leads to death, or one that looks rubbish now, which will lead to resurrection? Our time is gone. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we uh, just pause for a moment to think about uh, the significance of the things that we've uh, thought about this morning. We thank you for the realism of the scriptures. 
uh, we look at our lives and uh, some of us are already beginning to notice the effects of age and decay. And all of us will experience in the end, unless the Lord Jesus returns first, uh, deterioration and uh, death which will destroy everything we've ever done and all those we've ever loved and anyone we've ever spent time with. All the things we've done which will come to nothing in the end. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who similarly despite having life in himself, handed himself over to death. For the sake of our world and ourselves, and has been raised and will return in glory. And we pray that you would help us to believe that his way of doing things is the right way. We bump into so many things that encourage us that if only we did it differently, life would be more straightforward. If only we did Christian ministry differently or our church has got their act together a bit in this area or, or that area, all would be well, all would be straightforward. We recognize that it was not so for the Apostle Paul. And we pray that you'd help us to believe that his way is the right way of doing things. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.